0: Back to another episode of Much Language, Such Talk. In today's episode, we are celebrating International Autism Awareness Day, which was on April 2nd, and you'll be listening to me, Brittany, as I speak with two wonderful guests, Sunny Hallett and Dr. Beranger Digard, about bilingualism and autism. Sunny Hallett is the co-founder and mental health advisor of Amaze, Autistic Mutual Aid Society Edinburgh. They are also a trainee counsellor and autistic advocate. Dr. Degard just finished her PhD in psychiatry at the University of Edinburgh. Her research focused on how being bilingual shapes the way autistic and non autistic adults understand social information and relate to other people in terms of lived experiences, mental skills, and brain networks. During her PhD, she wrote the blog PhD and Stuff, and she is currently working as an engagement officer at the Patrick Wilde Center. Welcome, Béranger and Sunny. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining us today. So before we get started, something that's quite important, in particular as we are a language-related podcast, is clarifying the language that is appropriate to be using. So Sunny, what is the way that people within the community prefer to be referred to? Is it person-centered language, autistic person, or is it rather person with autism? What is the preferred language?
1: So within the sort of autistic community, which is the community of people who are autistic, There is a general preference, and of course individuals are going to vary, but there's a general preference for identity-first language, and that is autistic person, as opposed to person-first language, which might be person with autism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you might meet people who would prefer something else, and that's absolutely fine and valid, and there are lots of good reasons why other people in the disability community might prefer person-first. But for autistic people, our identity is, for a lot of us, very important. And one thing that a lot of us say is, you know, if you need to be reminded that we're people, then we have a bigger problem.
0: So from that, I take it that you would prefer autistic person moving forward rather than person with... I'm an autistic person. Yeah. Perfect. So my first question is going to be directed for Berengere. You've just finished your PhD. Could you explain a little bit about your research and how you got interested in the topic?
2: First, I'm going to say how I got interested in the topic because that's a bit of an odd one. So my background is in biology and neurobiology, and I used to research dementia and other neurodegenerative diseases. And it's pretty much what I was supposed to do as well for my PhD. And during my gap year, when I was looking at potential ideas for PhD projects, looking at very much brain stuff and aging brain, I just randomly came across the interview it was a five minutes long interview of an autistic multilingual writer who was talking about his new book so his name is Joseph chauvenet, and yeah, it was just five minutes he was talking about his book about autistic multilingual characters and I was mesmerized and I can't even explain it I just got hooked and the next day I, I bought the book and I read it in one day and that was it that was What I wanted to do, it was like a revelation in my life. And I, I can't even explain it really. I just connected so much with this book and I decided that I don't know if it's something that I can do, but if I can, then I would do it. So I just looked at what existed in terms of research in the field, the very general field of bilingualism in autism. And at the time in 2015, there was pretty much nothing. I think there were like two papers. Hmm. And in Europe, the only study that I found was one poster, not even a paper. On bilingual parents' experiences of choosing or not choosing bilingualism for their autistic or non autistic child. So that was not really in my field because I mean, I do brain stuff and neuroscience stuff. But I emailed the researcher who had done that study. He said, That's not exactly what I want to do, but that's close enough. That's the best I could find. So should we work together? And he said, Yes. So that was Sue Fletcher Watson. And that's how I came to do that, just because I read a book that just entirely changed everything that I was supposed to do with
0: my research career. Wow, that's that's so interesting. Just five minutes of your life and then new career path. That's wonderful. Exactly. Super interesting. Yeah. And so
2: my research that I ended up doing, I wanted to understand whether bilingualism really could change the cognitive side of things and brain side of things in people, just generally, because there's all Mm -hmm. of this debate, like, does bilingualism do something for the brain and everything? So I was interested in that, but I was also interested in whatever happens for neurotypical brain, what happens for an autistic brain, what happens for an autistic mind that sees the world differently to a neurotypical mind. And so I wanted to do that and especially focusing on the social processes and on the social aspect of it, looking at it from really like multidimensional. So not just the neurological aspect of it, but also cognition and very importantly, the actual life. Because whatever you find at the neurological level, if it does not really have any benefit at the life level, then there was not much point. So yes, I really wanted to look at what's going on the full experience.
0: So similar to what you've just described your research is based on, we had a comment from someone on social media, Jess, who asked about seeing a lot of studies around autism, focusing largely on children and developmental language skills, not so much in Adults. So was your research focusing on adults or children or people across the lifespan? So
2: I decided to only look at adults. Mm -hmm. Well, indeed, most research on autism just generally is on children. Sure, because I mean, it's an important developmental phase, just generally in life. Childhood is very important, but we spend most of our life not as children.
0: That's true. Yes.
2: <laughs> so I felt like it was important to look at what was going on in adulthood also because maybe things take time to settle. Maybe things take time to just become bilingual. Looking at adults allowed me to actually allow for time to happen and experiences to develop and things like that. I was also interested in seeing if there is hopefully an advantage to being bilingual, does this advantage actually still exist in adulthood? Because if you see something in childhood, but then in adulthood, then there's nothing left uh, in terms of that advantage. It's interesting, but it's not what I was interested in. Mm -hmm.
0: So if someone was interested in autism with people who are older in age, what sort of resources or literature might they be directed towards besides perhaps your dissertation?
2: To date, I think my thesis is the only large piece of research done on autistic bilingual adults. And this is very sad because it's 2020, like the world should not have been waiting for me to come and do this research, really. I mean, there are a few case studies and it's highly polyglot autistic people. And most autistic bilingual people are not polyglots, they're just bilingual people. So... It's interesting to look at the language skills of these polyglots, but it's not representative of just most of autistic people, really. But yes, for now, mostly my thesis, but new studies are coming slowly but surely. Very
0: good. Following from that, what then would you say are some common assumptions about autism and bilingualism that recent research, meaning your research, has revealed to be untrue?
2: I'd say uh, that considering I keep on getting tagged in all of these tweets, apparently just that they exist oh okay <laughs> yes that is just the first thing i get like almost not weekly but almost tagged in stuff like people thinking that being autistic means you can't be bilingual and then people saying well i don't know she did an entire phd thesis on the topic so oh, good. <laughs> i feel like they must exist otherwise she should she would have studied something else no that's fair, like I would not have spent four years of my life looking at like, how bilingualism changed the life of people if they didn't exist so that's the first thing. yes, autistic people can be bilingual. <laughs> yeah. Sonny is an autistic bilingual person, so clearly they exist that's the first thing, and there are other loads of misconceptions, but that that might be the the first one and indeed, for example, when I was creating my project for my thesis, I also proposed it as a collaboration between my French university in Lyon and here in Edinburgh and at the interview or well, whether they would give me the funding or not I spent 10 minutes explaining my project and my idea and then the 10 minutes of questions were essentially just but so you want to uh, like recruit autistic bilingual people yes but but they, they can't because you see they are autistic yes they are Ooh. so they they can't be bilingual you understand that yes they can no 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 they can't yes they can so i quickly realized that i would not get the funding
0: right (laughs) yeah
2: (laughs) so yeah that is it i don't know if you have others that you came across other assumptions about bilingualism in autism that are very much not true
1: yeah i mean i find it quite funny in a way that you you know you were talking about like people would tag you and sort of be like and i just think did any of them, like, you know, they could discover autistic Twitter and be like, hey, asking autistics, any of you bilingual? Yeah, <laughs>
2: exactly. Like, for all of them,
1: I want to say, but but I know so many. Like, Do you want their details?
2: Do you want to talk to them? Because, I mean, I'm pleased that you feel the need to tag a researcher, but also,
1: they're there. Just talk to them. You don't need me to tell you that they do exist. I think what you touched on earlier as well, sure about you know, how there are polyglots. And I think maybe a slightly more nuanced misunderstanding is that we have to be really into languages to be bilingual. Mm. And like, I really don't, I'm not that into languages. Like, (laughs) it's interesting. I like words, but like, I grew up with two languages, like lots of bilingual kids do. That's it. Really. So there's lots of kind of quote unquote, sort of normal ways of being bilingual. No, I mean, not to say that, you know, What I'm saying is that you don't have to have a sort of, you know, savant or super interest in language to be bilingual and autistic, just as you don't for non-autistic people.
0: I think that's a really interesting point. So a lot of the assumptions that I know about or misconceptions is this sort of savant prototype. And I think that's a really good point that that's not necessarily the case. Sure, there will be people like that, but that's not going to be representative of the larger community on the whole. Yeah. So what languages did you grow up with, Sunny?
1: So I grew up with English and Mandarin Chinese. My mum is from China and my dad is from the UK and it was actually quite funny because I think my mum mostly used English with me and my dad mostly used Chinese. Oh. They're both they're, they're both bilingual and both fluent. So and I went to school like regular school in the UK and in China. My parents were quite keen not to send me to any international schools. They wanted me to like grow up with
0: the language as it's spoken in both countries. Very interesting. And Beranger, you are bilingual as well, if you'd like to mention your languages. Sure. Well, my
2: first language is French because I'm French and I was born in France and my dad is French. My second language is Spanish, though it's quite rusty at the moment. So my mom is Spanish and My grandparents could not speak French at all, so I was speaking uh, Spanish with them. And I learned English at school, and I live using English all the time. Right.
0: Very nice. Okay, so going back more to our discussion of autism and bilingualism, I'll direct this towards you first, Sunny. Who are autistic people and also happen to be bilingual, have any sort of advantage or disadvantage in learning languages as a result of being an autistic person?
1: So I wouldn't say that it was, I think, you know, autistic people tend to sort of inhabit the extremes quite a lot. So while I don't think that there's any kind of specific rule about whether we find it easier or harder, I mean, I guess there might be more research on that, but I think that one thing that does define a lot of autistic experience is that, you know, if we're very, very into something, then we might find it easier so when that comes to language acquisition in a sort of more school-based way or a sort of, you know, interest-based way, then like I said earlier, you know that's why you sort of get polyglots who are really into language and they're very motivated. Mm-hmm. But I think aside from that, you know, it's the social sort of social difficulties can get in the way. So a lot of autistic people, for example, get made fun of for our accents or our way of talking. I grew up being told that I spoke very posh and very correctly and actually, that was just me, like, trying to be accurate. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Not really kind of fitting in with what the other kids, how they were talking. But yeah, I mean, I think in a way, it's possible that being autistic did make me find language classes in school harder, Mm -hmm. just because there was a lot of social stuff. There was a lot of kind of, you know, getting in pairs for conversations. And I just found that terrifying.
0: Right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So even just the way of teaching with group work, that sort of thing would be something that's not necessarily attractive to you, I would say.
1: Yeah, but I wouldn't say it impacted my, you know, organic acquisition of English and
0: Chinese, for example. Interesting. And from the research perspective, Belanger, is there anything there?
2: I mean you might be surprised to know that there's not much research on the topic. Wow. <laughs> I know, I know. So all I have is really from my first study. Sonny, you might have taken part in that one. I think I did. And the, my first study was an online survey and I had a lot of like qualitative questions as well. Uh in sort of like, hey, tell me about your life. And some of my participants actually said, well, learning like the learning environment was key for me to be able to learn the language. For example, you had Some people who would say that they were only able to learn languages actually at school because it was very, like you had the rules, you had the grammar rules that you could learn and you could follow. It was all very well structured. You could see the patterns across the language and across languages and everything. And that is a way that for them worked really well. And actually some of them say, it's funny funny that your experience with the conversation is that because some of them would say that actually they really enjoyed having these sort of like scripts of conversation Mm -hmm. to practice. Because it was meant to, you're supposed to do that when you learn a language. And that was for them, like a little tool that they could reuse basically. So they, yeah, they really liked the actual being taught the language and they said they were absolutely enabled to learn a language just from the environment. While others, actually, it was the other way around. And they found the learning at school very like, they just could not, they really were, were stuck at le- when learning at school and it was very like s- stressful for them. They were so afraid of making mistakes and everything just very uncomfortable experience. And they had none of the languages that they had tried to learn at school stuck. While the languages that they had learned in the environment, they got on really, really well and were fluent in these languages that they acquired just just by being there. So I think the main result here is that it's not a one-size-fits-all. Exactly, yeah. Just people learn differently. And something that would be the best strategy for one autistic person would not be necessarily the best strategy for another autistic person
1: actually it's it's quite a common trope in a way in the autistic community where we talk about you know some people find going to another country that speaks another language really helpful because anything that they might seem socially weird in their home country is just put down to them not speaking the language and being a foreigner oh yeah Mm -hmm. so that can be really helpful for some people and they end up being very immersed and my dad has shares a of autistic traits. I don't know, you know, where he feels in terms of his neurology, but he moved to China in his twenties and is fluent to the point now where you couldn't tell that he has an accent. But I think that there was a sense, you know, when he moved, people saw that he was different, but they weren't like, you're weird that you're different. They're like, ah, you're different because you're a foreigner, but well done on the speaking.
2: (laughs) I had loads of participants who also said that, that going abroad was just liberating because they were not... Exactly. Like they could be so themselves because none of their quirks or oddities or like thing that is not like the other people around them is just immediately. Oh, no, you're just from abroad. That's fine. And that just very liberating. And on that note, there was also another participant who said that actually they loved to travel abroad with their friends and families because abroad they were the most suited at communicating because they were the one who knew like two or three languages. And so the entire group was just relying on them to communicate and they were then the one being able to communicate with other people and like link the group like socially with the locals and all of that. So
0: that can also happen. So following from what we've just been discussing around the literature in bilingualism on the whole, there has been some suggestion that there are certain social or cognitive benefits from knowing and using multiple languages. From the research perspective, or from your experience, Sunny, do you think autistic people benefit from bilingualism in that way?
1: Okay, well, I'll leave it to so Baron just to sort of talk about more of the, you know, in terms of the benefits and sort of more the literature, more anecdotally and within the community and my own experience. Part of it is just I think there's a benefit to not restricting people, you know, that there was definitely a history of, and it, you know, it continues to sort of where families who would otherwise be bilingual are told, oh, your kid's autistic, so you should stick to one language. And that could mean cutting a person off from a whole chunk of their culture and their, even their, their extended family. And I mean, the other part of it is that I think it does give us more tools. I think a lot of autistic people do and really enjoy wordplay. And some of that is about accuracy. Some of that is about actually being really wanting to understand what it is that people mean or what we mean when words are being used. Because actually a lot of assumptions that people can safely make with each other don't work with us. Right. So some of the word players around that to kind of go, well, what is it that you really mean? It's not that we hear raining cats and dogs and think, oh, it's literally raining cats and dogs. It's We're like, well, that's a funny thing to say. You know, like, I wonder what it is that they mean there about the quality of the rain. And when it comes to bilingualism, I think, you know, certainly for me, I think, oh, there's a Chinese word that better encapsulates this idea or this feeling or this um, than an English word, or vice versa. And I think sort of there's something about language development there as well, when one part can feed you know back and forth with the other, uh, one language can with the other, and give me kind of more ways to express things and more creativity, because I see that actually it's all relative, you know, language, there's no fixed meaning to any idea that can be expressed in a number of different ways. And there's one thing I've always found interesting is that I had no issues with reading and writing in English. but And a lot of autistic people you know, do struggle with things like handwriting legibility and stuff because of sort of dexterity. And, but I was the bottom of the class with handwriting in Chinese. And I think it's because Chinese characters are very precise and they have to be written very carefully in a certain way, very detailed. And the drilling that I got doing that meant that I had no issues writing in English I was like 26 letters that's
0: right <laughs> that's nothing piece of cake in comparison yeah
1: <laughs> yeah so that masked my autism actually a bit when I came back to the UK it masked you know people didn't realize I think that that's something I could have struggled with but yeah I mean all of these things I think they help you you know having extra languages can give you additional skills at times
0: and I, I really like the part that you were discussing of opening the door for creativity and just understanding and being able to pick and choose words that actually fit what you're trying to express and I think that's something that's quite universal that's what languages do is they open the door for communication but also your own personal understanding and the way that you might view things in the world and capture that with words so Berenger, what would you say about that
2: first I really want to say that indeed all of the things Sony said like in my research just what I found I had loads of participants said that being bilingual had just allowed them to know that they were I can't remember how they expressed it but like but it was true what they were feeling and what they were experiencing because there might not be a word to express it in their first language but there was a word in another language and it was acknowledged and it was it was real and that was really really beautiful to see that actually yes just having access to another language allowed them to really better understand themselves by putting a word on on something, for example, and that was only possible because they knew more than one language. And same for opening doors. I agree as well. I had so many of my participants who said that, for example, their job they had thanks to the fact that they knew several languages or education, for example, things like just leisure as well, that they could, for example, if they don't have English as a first language, being fluent in English allowed them to just play video games with uh, other people, make other friends. So Basically, all of the same things that are beneficial in terms of the, the life aspect of it for any bilingual person also applies to autistic people, really. It's just very straightforward here. because It's people with languages. Exactly. Now, because you also had a question in terms of the cognitive aspect of it and the benefits. So again, there is not much research on the topic. Surprise. <laughs> I know, I know. So... For now, the main finding is that there's no detrimental effect. Like it's not worse for an autistic child to be raised bilingually compared to monolingually. You can have some delay in terms of language development, but like we see for any bilingually raised child, Mm -hmm. there's always a bit of delay. It's just that for autistic children, there might also be other language difficulties. So it just like adds up and that can scare parents and practitioners. But it's pretty much typical process like process of development when you have two languages. So that is what can be observed, but that's really the only real negative effect of bilingualism in terms of cognition or things like that. There are some studies on executive skills in children. Again, no detrimental effect of bilingualism. There are some studies on more autistic traits and social functioning, again no detrimental effect, even sometimes the, I think that one, that was a study with teenagers and actually for social functioning, whatever that implies, but whatever measure they used in that study, actually the bilingual teenagers were just scoring higher, so doing better on that one scale that was used. So to say that it's not detrimental and even possibly some positive aspects as well. And then, so in my study, I looked at social cognition, perspective taking in particular. So when you take the perspective of somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, the analysis that I did was not comparing monolinguals and bilinguals. I just took loads of bilingual people and I looked at each of these person's profiles and see which feature of bilingualism was linked with their proficiency at the task that I was using. And I saw that actually there was an effect of the age of acquisition of the second language there was no effect of like the proficiency in the languages or how much they used the languages but there was this effect of the age of acquisition meaning that actually those who were who acquired their second language the autistic bilingual people who acquired their second language earlier actually scored better scored higher at the test than autistic bilingual people possibly equally fluent who had learned their second language later on in childhood which could suggest that actually Growing up with two languages had some beneficial social cognitive effects in childhood during development that was actually still visible in adulthood after years and years and years of having reached their final cognitive skills. Yeah, so that was just one skill that was just perspective taking. So it doesn't mean that there might not be some some sort of detrimental effect in other skills, but as I, explained, I used to explain to my participants, it's like, Having a detrimental effect in some aspect doesn't mean that it's bad. Like, for example, if you asked me to list all the titles of, I don't know, all the Harry Potter books, for example, it would take me longer because I have to think, wait, no, which language, which language? Because I've read them in three different languages. So it would slow me down to know several languages where obviously a monolingual person would do that much faster. Does it mean that it's bad to be multilingual? No. So yes, the the main thing here is bilingualism does not cause a cognitive delay. Like it was thought for neurotypical children 20 years ago. And today we're showing that it's also pretty much the same. No cognitive delay to being raised bilingually. And possibly actually some cognitive advantages for some skills, just like for neurotypical children. Because actually in the results that I found was that it was actually exactly the same relationship of the benefits of early bilingualism on that one specific scale, were exactly the same in the neurotypical group and in the autistic group.
0: Interesting. So that sort of connects to a question that we got from social media as well, talking about age of acquisition. So in the broader literature, as you've already just discussed, there's a big discussion around age of acquisition, as in when you acquire the language, if there's this so-called critical period whereby after a certain age, maybe you can't acquire language, etc. You sort of mentioned just now that you have looked at this age of acquisition factor and likely the answer to this next question will be no, considering that there's not a lot of research on adults. Is there any research or evidence saying that there's a different impact for adults learning an additional language versus autistic children learning a different language?
2: You might be surprised to know that. We don't know. Surprise again. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise. Yeah. There's no research. So for the process that I was looking at, the main effect was indeed the age. Yeah. Suggesting a, a sensitive critical period for that. But we know from research in neurotypical people that actually, for example, for executive skills, it seems to be more of the, the environment and how you use the languages. So if you're more into a dual language environment or more in a like single language environment, that is, seems to be the thing that influences this process. Possibly it's the same for autistic people. We don't know. So the fact that for one process, the effect is in childhood, maybe for another, the effect is a different aspect to being bilingual, because there are so many different ways of being bilingual. They would be linked with different possible advantages later on in life. Again, there's no research on that.
0: I mean, this was to be expected, I think, given our conversation so far. (laughs) (laughs) So in general... Whether you are an autistic person or not, it can be quite difficult to understand verbal and nonverbal cues, especially when you have a different culture at play. Say you have a neurotypical person such as myself. If I learn another language and then go to another country, it's going to be an adjustment for me culturally. In your experience, Sunny, or from your research, Bélanger, do you feel that there is an advantage or disadvantage to an autistic person being bilingual in this cultural adjustment between different languages? understanding verbal and nonverbal cues
1: good question I think that in some ways I think a lot of the sort of thinking around I'm just gonna roll back a bit on mm-hmm. but I think you know a lot of the thinking around autism and why autistic people struggle with social stuff and nonverbal cues and verbal cues you know is like people I think have for a long time been looking at it in the wrong way like as in they sort of look at autistic people and they go okay this person is struggling." With communication and with social you know interaction therefore we must make it simpler for them therefore you know they can't acquire it the same way as everyone else we must kind of just break it down teach them social skills you know don't let them learn another language and I think that's kind of sort of looking for, at the wrong solution because it's it's more that autistic people have um, what Damien Milton who's an autistic academic would call sort of the double empathy problem there is a mismatch there is a sort of difference in how we communicate between autistic people and non-autistic people and there's some really great research about how you know autistic people are able to sort of pass on information between each other between with other autistic people just as well if not possibly better but just as well probably as um chains of non-autistic people talking to each other and um, passing on information it's the mixed groups that where you get a problem so in that context you know I think so part of that so the answer to that in a way is that we need to sort of make the environment work for the autistic person right we need to sort of have sort of verbal and non-verbal cues work in a way that the individual can understand and when you grow up with a lifetime of being told how could you get it wrong? Why did you get it wrong? You can't possibly feel that. It builds up a lot of trauma. You know, there's a lot of sort of difficulty around that, which can cause greater social difficulties further down the line. And it's one thing that I'm learning in my training to be a counsellor, for example, is I have no difficulty reading other people and connecting with other people, irrespective of neurology. As long as I feel confident in myself and can do the expressing on my terms so I might not use emotion words I might use metaphor and going into now what your original question which I think was about reading cues in a second language so autistic people yeah might struggle when it comes to communication in the context of cues but in a way there's a possibility that in a new environment there's a more level playing field because it's like everyone's struggling a bit like I, I discovered that when the pandemic hit and we all moved on to Zoom, everyone was awkward. And I was like, (laughs) oh, good. This is how I feel all the time. And now I feel kind of normal. (laughs) And, you know, I think my experience of traveling in other countries where I don't speak the language, I have struggled compared with some people who are able to just kind of go off body language and not speak any words at all. But that's partly to do with my own insecurities around that like my own fear of being so badly frightened by social interactions in the past i'd be quite curious to know how i would manage now and i think yeah i mean there's (laughs) there's a lot of factors at play is my very convoluted answer to that that is
2: such an interesting question though like i mean possibly being if you've grown up in two cultures you have like two sets of social body language that you can use and like hope for the best. But even even then, possibly it doesn't apply. But I mean, even just already, you coming from the US, Brittany, and then me coming from France, or just in the UK, it's just like the whole thing. Just they they threw me off, like oh yes, the, the way they the, the facial expressions, they even like not necessarily verbal, 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 but like intonations and stuff like that. Like it took me a year and a half or so to adjust to that's how these people communicate, and I'm not even from very far away. So you are from very far
0: away. But... I am from very far away, but have the same native language as most people. True. And found the same issue. Yeah. It, yeah. It in particular around things like sarcasm.
2: I, I feel like possibly for autistic people, you'd have just like one more layer of just like really deep reflection as to what is going on. <laughs> what are you trying to do? <laughs> and but that it could also be an advantage in that autistic people are used to having to do this thinking for all of their interactions with non-autistic people while for a neurotypical person traveling abroad is like the first time a real shock of like having to adjust to this new system so possibly it could go either way really that's an interesting point yeah yeah like autistic people have a lot of practice of trying to make sense of whatever the person is trying
1: to express in a very not obvious way and actually there's a nice example of there's a autistic conference run by and for autistic people every year called Autscape in the UK and um, occasionally non-autistic people have come along and they are so confused like <laughs> they I think do very much feel like they've gone somewhere like where people speak the same language but the cultural norms are all different and that's just fascinating like to me that you know it's like because for like for autistic people, we show up and we're like, oh, wow, this is so easy. You know, this is, this is so much easier. And actually, I think, you know, there's something there, Bronger, about, um, you know, what you're talking about perspective taking as well. And the, the, the findings about perspective taking um, when it comes to bilingualism is that it kind of makes sense because a lot of autistic people are told very early on, well, if you're not going to intuit these rules, we're going to tell them to you. We're going to tell you these are what the rules are. And then everyone goes around breaking them all the time. And that's really confusing. But if you speak multiple languages and you've been in touch with multiple cultures, you learn, oh, it's all relative. There are no hard and fast rules. And you learn that you just have to say, I mean, I remember growing up and thinking, oh, yes, this person won't think this because they're not Chinese. They have a different cultural background, so they're going to think this other thing. And you learn that perspective taking as part of just growing up. Without people saying, "Yeah, you're getting it wrong," because I know there's no wrong.
2: Right. Yeah, but th- that's great. I really hope that this is what is going on in my findings, and in that indeed, like, the, there's a lot of theories about autism. One of them is that perspective taking cannot and will not develop. <laughs> and my findings, are like, yes, but it did. So, like, it clearly, if becoming bilingual in childhood and if, had an effect, possibly that was not due to explicit teaching. Possibly it was just the experience. So clearly it did develop because look at them, they're doing it. <laughs> so that's, I really hope that's what is going on. But also I was going to say, Sonny, I would love to see like a study run at Oscape on like seeing the social skills of neurotypical people <laughs> in, in this setting, like the entire, like the reverse uh, study entirely. That would be amazing.
0: That would be fascinating. I bet the findings would be, Somewhat surprising for some people. Exactly. (laughs) I think at some point
1: at Autscape we would have to just get our captive neurotypicals and you know poke at them and see what happens. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) I
2: think it would be so great, like pretty much the same task that I have made that I made you do, like you know, like looking at the videos and like seeing and trying to make sense of what was going on. I would love to see the results of that.
0: (laughs) So a question that we have from social media from Ute, who has asked, "Autism is a spectrum." What insights are there from research or experience concerning different kinds of autism and ways in which children and adults acquire, learn or maintain different languages?
2: I want to say that there's not much research on that. Yes, but there is a little bit. Oh, exciting. <laughs> I know. And by a little bit like one study or two, you know. You have to really like reevaluate your your perspectives when you do that kind of research. So, I mean, a lot of it as well, not necessarily research, but uh, people who emailed me and told me about their stories, it's true that, I mean, in autism is a spectrum, many different kinds of skills, strengths in different domains. And for example, one type uh, of thing that can be worrying for parents and practitioners alike, it's when the child is non-speaking in in childhood, possibly later on as well. And then, oh my God, if the child is non-speaking, what do we do? And there are two very different approaches to this situation. In a study actually done by uh, Sarah Hampton and Sufletcher-Watson here in Edinburgh, you had the case of a parent who would just like, okay, well, we're just going to go full on English and just reinforce that one language as much as possible and hope for the best. So that was one strategy. And then the other strategy was uh, actually somebody who emailed me to tell me about their experience and that person had two children raised bilingually uh, between like in France with French and English and it turns out that the the second child uh, was autistic and nonverbal. still is autistic I don't know if the child is still non-speaking I don't know but this person's attitude was like well my first child is bilingual I'm not going to stop using my native language because then that would be a loss for the other child so we're just gonna keep on doing what we do and if the child eventually speaks Cool, the child doesn't eventually speak. Cool, doesn't change really that much for us. We're just going to keep on living our life as we have. And they did. And they actually, the, the child had a very interesting behavior in that in, in France, they would constantly watch their cartoons only in English, and the cartoons had to be in English. And then they moved back to the UK, and where the main language was then English. And the child decided to watch all of their cartoons in French. And while before it would have been like absolutely a no go to watch cartoons in French and suddenly it was like, no, 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 we're changing. We're doing cartoons cartoons in French, which is quite a typical attitude for bilingual children to just have one language that they really like for one activity. And then that's it. So this non-speaking autistic child just was perfectly bilingual happened to not speak, but that was just uh, the, t- the only difference. Basically, they would have, they would understand both, use each language with like in different context and by using, I mean, listening to. So very typical bilingual child just happened to be non-speaking. Just to say that actually it's more being non-speaking was not blocking any access to bilingualism at all. That's super
0: interesting. That was actually one of the questions um, that someone else had posed specifically around people who maybe were non-speaking or non-verbal. I'm not sure what the right term for that is. Whether or not they can still be bilingual, and clearly, as you've shown there, yes.
2: Clearly, they, they can, yes. And I mean, I don't know, Sonny, but like I have a lot of participants who said that they were also sometimes just still having quite a bit of non-verbalism in their life. And so being bilingual was just like just just one other thing for when they were speaking.
1: I think it's interesting, um, you know, what you said about the sort of two completely contradictory approaches or completely different opposite approaches, because I think it's, oh, it's understandable, isn't it? If somebody is struggling with communication, you could see the parents being like, oh, well, we don't want to complicate it. You know, we... but actually what that kind of does is it forces one approach on an individual. Where actually what you want if someone's struggling is you give them choice. If the aim is for them to communicate, you give them as much choice as possible. Not not overwhelm them. But I mean, you see that the same with like non-speaking kids who, you know, if you force them to speak, it causes a lot of pain and trauma. But if you give them, say, the option of sign or um, you know, picture boards and like this this communication comes comes out because if they want to communicate whatever, you know, (laughs) whatever they need to do that. So to me, it's sort of, it doesn't really make sense to kind of limit that, really. Obviously, I wouldn't sort of want people to be forced to sort of speak more languages or to do more languages than they want to, but having access to that additional kind of means of communication. It's quite funny because, I I mean, I, I do, I have gone through periods of sort of struggling with words, although I don't think haven't tried, actually. I don't think language plays much of a part in it. But I have to think about maths in Chinese. There is no other way that I can think about maths. Like, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, it's. I think I learnt it. You know, most of my interest in maths was when I, when I was in China. So all of my mathematical ability is in Chinese. Yeah, no, as you said, like n- not forcing
2: it upon anybody. I think that's the most important thing I like. I mean, in that one study done here, I also had a case of, I think it was the study done here, I don't know, there are several studies, for once. They had a child who would just scream when hearing the minority language. They really just didn't, didn't like it at all. In that case, yes, indeed, there's no point in forcing it. It's, way like, we don't want it to be, like, more of a painful experience than the alternative, really. But if the child doesn't mind, well, continue. And then also being non-verbal, non-speaking at like in the few first years of development also doesn't mean that they would develop language later on. And in that case, if they were already in a bilingual environment, cool. So that's, that's also that it's not, there's no a need to restrict anything. And as you said, it's just giving opportunities for different options, really with one of them, maybe that they would prefer to the other and Yes, like there's also, for example, the question uh, of uh, sequential learning of a language, uh, which, was, which was recommended for even your typical children uh, 20 years ago, where it was first, they were like, okay, but first do one language, and then when the child is like around five, you can introduce the other language, and that, that's it. Then it will be good. We'll make sure that way that the first language is really well established and that there won't be any mixing, as if mixing languages was bad. And that approach for neurotypical children, why not? There's no benefit. it's not beneficial in any sort of way. Actually, it's, it's, we know it's better to do it the other way around, but it's not dramatic to do it that way. Sure. And contrary, in the context of autism, where if possibly, if you have an autistic child who is very much into sameness and that uh, it's very important for the, the child to have a good consistency in what is going on around them. If you suddenly, after five years, start speaking a different language for no reason at all in exactly the same environment, like the same home, if you don't move country, I mean, obviously if you move country, you don't really have a choice, but suddenly the same person that's doing exactly the same activity, suddenly in an entirely different language, possibly that won't go down well. And I can understand, I mean, from my personal experience, my mom did first raised in French, my brother and I. Because 20 years ago, 28 years ago, uh, that was the recommended approach, regardless of anything. But also in France, autism is not really recognized even today. So 28 years ago, let's not even speak about that. Uh, So yes, the approach was just first one language. And she decided to introduce Spanish later on when I was around maybe three. And my brother must have been like four years older than me, Uh, (laughs) seven. And my brother had no problem with that. Uh, like, sure, but my brother is very mellow. Like, sure, okay, no problem. That's just that language that we used to only have with our grandparents. Now we have it at home. No problem. I refused. Did you? And it was just, I, I refused. And it was just, I would just shut down and not not reply to her. What I could understand what she was saying, because I could understand Spanish. But mom speaks in French. And that is it. And um, so, yeah, I would just ignore her entirely, just not at all uh, respond to her speaking suddenly out of absolutely nowhere, for no reason at all that a three-year-old can understand speaking a different language. So knowing that, I cannot judge autistic children who would just uh, shut down their parents entirely if they've randomly decided to speak a different language. Yeah, that strategy that is not useful for neurotypical children might actually very much not work at all autistic children I mean maybe it would work for some of them but probably not
1: for many I don't know what you would think Sonny (laughs) no I feel a bit clammy just you describing it really (laughs) like I think you know we notice when things are weird you know we notice when things are unnatural yeah um and we have a sensitivity to it I think a lot of autistic people you know we've been we grow up very finely attuned to threat and to danger and to like people potentially being angry at us (laughs) Um, and to have you know a a parent figure or somebody who you know care about suddenly change in their behavior like that or what feels like their behavior would be oh what's happened have i done something wrong like and you think about like how much autistic people can like really react to just somebody shaving their beard, beard off (laughs) <laughs> like, you know, I mean, when when my partner grows a beard and then shaves it off, I'm like, is it still you? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So, yeah, no. <laughs> so, take a beard and make it a language. And then obviously, it's on higher yeah, so yeah. Making it something like that. <laughs> yeah. Is, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, and uh, especially when we know that, really, and especially for autistic children, uh, like the. The role of the communication with the parents is so important. I mean, f- for all children, of course, it's very important to be able to have that strong bond through which like so much of the learning happens. If like yeah. adding this language like, later on without any like contextual explanation that the child can understand, but maybe the child would understand if that is done like were they much older, sure, but it could potentially like really break down that link. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, if it's established from the start, then there's just no, no questions. So yes, that's that advice that is still given a lot, that is not given anymore at all to neurotypical children, and that is still given a lot at best
0: for autistic children is actually just, to, just probably not working at all. Interesting. Yeah, no, I think it's a really good point. I think one of the themes that's, for me, listening to our conversation and sort of the different perspectives that have been mentioned here, that's coming across quite clearly is a lot of the advice say or recommendations that might be given for children, for neurotypical children that is quite antiquated, 20, 50 years old, is still being actively suggested for autistic children, and why would we expect that to work if it doesn't if It doesn't work for one group, why would you expect it to work necessarily for another group?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That is I think taking into consideration the wrong aspects of autism. Right like trying to make it simpler to facilitate one thing by very much going straight into the wall for another thing, which just that does not make sense. And no, yeah. I mean, I wanted to add in terms of bilingualism for autistic people that not learning as well a language in, because here we are talking about like growing up bilingually, et cetera. Right. And so of course, autistic people can learn a second language or even a third, uh, just through attending school, many, many people acquire a language that way, or by moving abroad, or just by interest later on. Without necessarily being like just passionate about language, they can just develop an interest for a particular language and the, and just learn it. And that is actually something that I really loved. One of my findings about my research was the the sensory aspect of the languages uh, that. Is, I mean, I've I'm, to be fair, I haven't looked for studies on that topic uh, in bilingualism in neurotypical people.
0: I, yeah, I don't know any immediately myself.
2: But the, the sensory aspect of a language is just something that I had never really thought about uh, before meeting autistic bilingual people who would tell me about it. And I really love that because, I mean, as a bilingual person, I'm aware that, for example, when I haven't been speaking French for a very long time and I go home, the first day, like, my mouth just hurts a bit. Like, it feels weird to move your muscles in that way that you haven't used for a very long time. And, yeah, it does feel weird. But that's sort of, like, where it stopped in my reasoning. And then I met an autistic bilingual person who said that, they, for example, they taught themselves, I think it was German, uh, because they liked the the feeling of speaking German. Because it's true, the way you've moved your mouth in one language or the next is entirely different. And the feeling of speaking the language was something that they found really, really soothing and so enjoyable and calming and all of that. So they just became entirely fluent in German, but just not, not like a thousand languages, just, just that one, uh, that they just really enjoyed it. And I had an, I, I met another autistic bilingual person who was fluent in Japanese because uh, they just randomly came across like hearing Japanese, they found that it was just the most beautiful sounds ever. It was so soothing. So the best option to constantly be able to hear Japanese was just to become fluent in Japanese yourself. And so they just taught themselves Japanese, just to be able to then speak it, to hear it. And that's something that I find so, so beautiful. And that had like opening a whole new way of looking at languages through the sensory aspect of it, not just the meaning. And yeah, I'm so grateful for all of these people who, sh- who share their experiences and their views on their uh, their language journey f- on that point, because that, that had been something entirely new
1: for me. I, I love that this, you, you sort of got an insight into that through talking to autistic people, I think. Yeah I mean the sensory aspect of a lot of things and definitely language is something like if you read writing by autistic people you'll see a lot of kind of thinking about words not just the meanings but the feeling the sensation you know quite a lot is said in the autistic community about kind of stimming as in sort of kind of use calming sensations by making sounds or words and you know of course you'll have like Parents and practitioners pathologizing that, saying, Oh no, this person keeps repeating this word, but maybe it just feels good. It's a sort of nice, calming feeling. And there are certain words that for me, for example, I think, oh, oh, I want to say that word, or I want to make that sound um, in a certain moment. And other languages, like you say, you know, they have other rhythms and they give us access to like so many more sounds, <laughs> which is just really cool.
2: Yeah after like these conversations i started to think like my favorite words in several of like in my languages why were they my favorite words because like many people have a favorite word yeah like but none of my favorite words were because of their meaning and i could definitely <laughs> tell that <them> it was <laughs> clearly it was not the meaning and that it was i realized that it was just because they were so nice to say and they were so like all like written they were so nice to to write so these conversations just really entirely like made me rethink as well my attitude towards languages and towards yeah
0: all of, all of that that was just so great we've more or less gone through all the questions that people have asked thank you so much to our wonderful guests dr Bayonja Degard and sunny hallett for joining us today while we spoke about bilingualism and autism we hope you enjoyed it and learned some cool things or at least some thought-provoking information i know i certainly did A special thanks to our guests for their time and for sharing their expertise and experiences with us. If you're interested in learning more about them, you can find their links in the episode description and on our website. Also on our website, mlstpodcast.com, you can now leave us a review and let us know what you think. Tune in next time to keep learning about how languages shape us and the environment around us. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and...
2: Good idea. Más en lave.
0: Hasta luego.